What's going on, everybody? My name is Sean O'Brien. This is episode 11 of Maker Hub, a podcast focused on entrepreneurship, design thinking, and all things innovation. Today, I'm here with the super insightful former Microsoft employee turned current entrepreneur in residence, Ryan Phillips. I met Ryan as a university innovation fellow back in early 2017 and caught up for the first time since then here on episode 11. I'm excited to have Ryan on the podcast to discuss career moves, the balance between a deep understanding of one topic in comparison to a shallow understanding of many topics, and the transition between a hobby and a hobby that makes you money, and so much more. Can't wait for you to hear Ryan drop some knowledge on today's episode. You're a smart guy, huh? (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) No, no, no. I just know a lot of things about a few things. A lot of things about a few things. That's boring. What are your What are your views on like? For me, I guess I guess professionally, but like I've tried to focus on learning a very wide spectrum of things, and I found that I I'm not getting very deep. Yeah. In a lot of things. So like, what's your what's your outlook on which way is better? <laughs> I guess in your young the young part of your career, or like, what's your just really yeah. views overall on that? I heard something really interesting in that everybody should be a T-shaped person mm. where what they do is they have a broad spectrum of general analysis or general skills. And then one thing they go deep in. Right. And I think like for me, what I've tried to do early on in my career is I know that it's super hard to find out what I want to be good at, mm. but it's very easy to tell something that I don't want to be good at or something right. that I hate doing. Right. So right. it's like, I know within two weeks of doing something, if I hate it. Right. And then I'll just stop doing it. And so that's something that I found is super easy is just to try a bunch of stuff. Right. And then eventually you find exactly what you don't like. Right. And then there's a bunch of stuff that after a few weeks, you're like, huh, this is actually pretty cool. Right. And then after a few months, you're like, huh, this is actually pretty cool. And right. then still after a few years, you're like, wow, it's been a few years. Right. So I think like that, I, I just have taken the sort of flip right. approach of that. Have you found your version of that yet? <sighs> or like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I asked that because I feel like I, I always think I find that version, right? Like, and then time goes by and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not really as interested in that. And then I, I just, I'm in this loop of just like trying to figure out, but like, do you, like, when do you figure out what you want to do? <laughs> so I don't know if I have, I think the, the thing that I'll say is like, I think whenever I get bored is when I stop pushing myself. Mm. So like, even like when I was doing photography, I got sort of bored. I, I did photography for maybe three to six years. When you say you did photography, like, like you so, were yeah, doing so, gigs? So and I, yeah, so I started in high school and just bought a camera when I was bored mm-hmm. um, over a summer one time and then started doing some sports stuff. And then I got to school, to college, and I was like, well, I should actually do something with my time. Right. Like I, I shouldn't just sit around. And so I, I started becoming a photographer for student media mm-hmm. on campus. Okay. And then from there started traveling with teams. And so I did mainly sports stuff. So I was traveling, you know, did football games, did basketball, did volleyball, soccer, everything. And then eventually what I noticed was that I was just doing sports. Right. And yeah, sports gets boring after a while. Um, And so, but it's like that constant push of just always trying something new. So whether it's going and doing a wedding or going doing nature photography or going and doing whatever it might be that's very different or like recently buying a drone and switching from still to video. Did you use it yet? Oh yeah, many okay. times. <laughs> oh yeah, many times. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's such a different challenge, right? Like it's so different when you're, it's not still and mm-hmm. captured and it's just constantly moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's different skill sets. And so I think for me, like it's less about doing the same exact thing for mm-hmm. three years or, or 10 years and really about how can I constantly push myself and evolve that right. thing to be harder, more difficult, right. whatever that might be. 
So you, do you think you got bored with photography or sports photography? Sports photography. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I think like anytime I get behind a camera today, so like since I graduated, I've pretty much stopped doing it just right. because uh, of timing and there's not as much opportunity when you're not in college. You're getting old. Um, and I know I'm getting really <laughs> old and then I'm like, shit, I need like, I need to stop these hobbies right. and yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I stopped, uh, I stopped doing it, but I, I never got, I, I wouldn't say bored with it. Mm -hmm. The one interesting thing that I did notice though, which was I think different than like hobby versus job is it was always a hobby. It was always something I did to get away from work, mm -hmm. to get away from the stress of life and just go shoot, you know, and as I guess that sounds bad, but <laughs> go <laughs> take pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not great. But anyways, go take pictures. Right. And so when I started doing it for a job, that was the switch for me. Okay. It was because it was less about the craft and the fun right. of it and more of, you know, for a sports game, there are 10 players where you need a picture of, mm -hmm. right. It's like, to me, that wasn't fun. And so right. what I, the other, the thing I have noticed though, to your point is I got bored doing that when it was a hobby and there was just myself and I was doing it for me to get right. away from work. That's fun. Right. Um, but I know, I knew I couldn't do it for a job. And right. truthfully, uh, you know, I had applied for ESPN. I had applied to be a sports photographer. I was on set when ESPN came to our college to okay. do a football game show. And I mean, like I was there for all of that. Right. And, uh, but it just, it just wasn't, wasn't fun. Right. Right. So, yeah. I feel like there is that, that crossover of once you kind of get so far into a hobby where you have to make the choice of like, do you go all in or not? And like, one of the things that I've been fascinated by is just the kind of YouTube ecosystem, right? Mm. Every 13 to, you know, 16 year old wants to be a YouTuber. Yeah. Like, like the fact that that's a dream for people is crazy to think, you know, five years ago, that just is, that's, I mean, you weren't even, no one was monetizing on YouTube five years ago. Yeah. And you have, there's a bunch of, I think in Asia, there's a bunch of like video streaming platforms. And I think YouTube's starting to see a little bit of it where teenagers will stream their lives, right? you know, just literally like 24 hours a day. Right. And like some of them, like musically is like a music focus yeah, yeah, one yeah. where they're like, you know, lip syncing, but it's like, it's a, it's, it's super interesting in that sense to say, is that a job? Is that right. a hobby? I mean, yeah. I think some of the top ones make hundreds of thousands a year. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like real money. Like, like yeah, <laughs> like proper money, like yeah. <laughs> not messing around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, and honestly I haven't found a good balance because like even today, like I would say like, you know, like actually something very like timely for me right now is I signed up to do a half marathon. Okay. And so I had, I've run for years since, mm -hmm. you know, high school just for fun, three, four miles after work, right. you know, a few times a week, clear my head. And now that I'm doing it for a half marathon and I really have to train and right. I really have to be serious about it, you know, it's sort of fallen out of love mm -hmm. a little bit, you know, and it's that thing that I have to wake up early to right. do on a Saturday. And, um, and so I think for me, that's become a very important sort of, I don't know, life lesson of right. is figure out what your hobbies are and, and keep them. And right. it's very important to have a distinction between hobbies and work and what you get paid and what you have to do and all this kind of stuff. Right. And then what you do as a release. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, I think after moving to San Francisco, where the the work pressures are so high, right? People are working, you know, twelve to fourteen hours every day right. and the weekends. Having a release is really important, right? Um, so it's something that I've I I I've tried to be diligent about, uh, but haven't yet been super diligent. Now, do you think that once you cross the finish line of the, is, you're running a half or mm -hmm. full? Half. Full. Okay. Yeah, okay. No, I'm not that crazy. <laughs> so once you cross the finish line of the half, do you think that that mentality will switch? It'll be like, oh, maybe I kind of like this. 
Um, so I'm, I'm definitely going to take a break. Okay. So I, I was sort of an idiot and booked a, a trip around the world the day I leave or the day I run the half. Oh, so okay. I run the half in the morning and then that afternoon I leave to fly to India. Oh, wow. Um, so I'm going to be gone for three weeks, but then when I get back, I think, I think that three weeks off will be a nice right. sort of decompression from the stress of, of, of running. And then I'll pick it up again. Right. Like it, that's been a constant theme is, you know, as I get, fall out of love with something, like there are probably five things in my life that I just love and running is one of them. Right. That, that very, you know, freeing, casual, few mile run after work is super peaceful. Right, right. Um, I think the, you know, I guess as you're growing up, you're told, you know, what's the, what's the, the cliche phrase of like, you never want to work a day in your life. Like if you're, oh, if yeah. you're not, if you uh, love what you do, like you'll never work a day in your right. life or something. What, do you think that that's true? Because at some point, like, even if you're doing what you really, really love, you get to a point where it's like, all right, like this is taxing on my body, either mentally, physically or whatever it may be. Yeah, I think it's true. Um, but what I'll say is that in every job, there's stuff you don't enjoy. Right. Even in like, like, for example, I love working with college students, mm-hmm. right? Like I love mentoring. I love helping them achieve their dreams. I love all of that. But even in that process, there's things that I don't like, right? right? The, the, the like travel back and forth to all the colleges is a very taxing thing. That's just tiring after right. even no matter how much you love doing it. Like there are things you just don't enjoy. Right. Um, you know, there's a ton of programmers who hate writing tests. Right. I think like that's the same thing, right? It's like love programming, but hate writing these like monotonous tests. Right. So I think that's the thing that I've had to keep in the back of my mind is that right. no matter what you do, there's going to be ups and downs. But I think over time, like I mentioned earlier, like as you see two weeks in two months in, there are things you'll really enjoy doing and there are things that, that you won't. But I think the other thing too is all of this comes into perspective when you take a break. You right. know, when you take a week or two weeks right. and just really decompress, you know what your mind is thinking about. Um, I, I recently switched jobs and thinking about, I took about two weeks off uh, just in the time I was trying to decide. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed is I was actually skiing with some best friends and I noticed that I'd be like in the middle of a ski slope and I'd be thinking about one of the jobs. Okay. And that was the moment where it was like, I know that's the job that I want. Right, right, and that's right. something that I've been very constant about is saying like, when I get completely outside of work, when I get completely outside of like day to day, what am I thinking about? Yeah. Um, and I think that's been, whenever I've struggled with the decision, that's been something that's super important. Okay. Yeah. So I think to your, to your point, like, yeah, I don't love it every day, but it, doesn't always feel like work. Right. Um, and I know, I know what I, I, I have, I guess, methods to find what I truly love, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. So let's jump right into who Ryan is, because I think this is a good segue. Oh one, one being the fact that you worked at Microsoft right out, of, right out of college and you did also did an internship there while you were in college, correct? Yep. So uh, why this is a good transition is because you left Microsoft <laughs> and I, I want to get your perspective on you know, since that was the first job out of college for you, since that was kind of your first introduction into real kind of, I guess, professional life career kind of moving forward type of thing. So when did you feel like it was, it was appropriate to leave? And when did like, like that thought process, how, how did you come to the conclusion that that was the right move? And when would you say is the right time frame to start evaluating those things? Oh, good question. Um, so to set the context, I was at Microsoft for about three years. Um, I did an internship before I joined for three months. Um, that internship was in a very different role. So as a data science sort of intern doing data analytics, joined as a program manager. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, very, uh, 
higher level than sort of any code would be. Uh, and I think for me, so in the three years I was in two jobs, uh, I spent the first year in an internal facing job that was mm-hmm. focused on engineering systems. And the second role was much more outward facing on inclusive design, working with all teams across the company. And I think for me, the moment when I realized that it was time to switch was when I found myself being one of the higher experts on the team. Um, I think for me, I try to keep a delicate balance of surrounding myself with experts in whatever field I'm mm-hmm. in. So like when I was, uh, you know, doing data scientists, like there were people there who had been like doing that stuff for 10 to 20 right. years. And like, I would just go sit in their office. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing when I joined the inclusive design team, it was like these people had lived and breathed inclusive design and it was their sort of right. baby. And I think, you know, after two years of being on the team, enough people had left sort of enough transitions had happened in between whose roles were what. Um, and I, I found myself being the mentor for a lot of people. Um, and I think where I'm at in my career being relatively early, I want to be around people who are going to challenge everything that I say. Right, right. Um, and, and, and really push me to be fantastic and great. And so I right. think that was the moment was when I started seeing people not struggle to push me, but people who didn't know what questions to ask or who would take what I was saying as just face value. Right. Um, So I think that's one thing. The other thing, which is much more tactical is things move slowly in a large organization, right? Microsoft is a hundred and something thousand people. Right. I was in office, which has 4,000 developers. Mm -hmm. So making any change in a company of that size is very tough, especially as a new hire. Right. Um, And like I said, I had been in career maybe a year or two years at this point. And so any amount of change is incredibly hard, even if you're the head of office. Right. But for me being sort of a new hire in the machine, I mean, and so I wanted to get back to a role where it was much more like fast paced. You have no idea if you're going to succeed or not. Right. And so I, that's why I decided to leave and, and join a smaller team. Right. Right. Um, I think that's been one of my kind of struggles right now, like working at Nissan, Microsoft's hundred thousand, hundred thousand employees, Nissan's 450,000 employees, <laughs> oh right? Gosh. So when you talk about a slow moving ship, this isn't the, uh, you know, trying to one up you thing, but it's just like a, it's like, you know, your ship is moving, you know, a quarter of the speed or, or Nissan ship is moving a quarter of the speed of Microsoft ship. And yeah. that's, that's so hard to comprehend and to make any changes. It's just, it's, it's near impossible. And, you know, when you kind of grow up, especially or not grow up, but when you're going through college, especially with an engineering and, and the kind of technical fields, you're you're pushed to innovate, you're pushed to change, you're pushed to kind of uh, challenge, I guess, the boundaries. And then you get into an organization and it's like, yeah, mm, yeah, you know, yeah, good luck. And that's that's like that's so frustrating. Yeah. Would you would you would you go back uh, and not work at Microsoft if you had the the choice? No. I, I would take the Microsoft job every, like I would be an idiot if I skipped that job mm-hmm. is basically what I'm trying to say is right. it was out of college. There are few places that are as good, you know, and I joined at a great time when right. Satya was taking over from Steve mm. Ballmer. It was, I mean, a complete, when you talk about organizational change of a large company, I mean, at the top, he did a fantastic job. It took him three years at this point. He's right. been there, you know, three or four years and he's still constantly making change. Mm-hmm. So I think like it's tough, but I, yeah, I would, I would take it every day. Yeah. I learned incredible skills about working with other people. I learned things about myself and how I like to work with managers or how right. I like to get and receive feedback. 
Uh, right. Like, yeah, I would take it no questions asked. And the other thing I'll say too is I think like, especially in technology, there's a, a group of, you know, maybe 10 companies and getting into those 10 companies, I feel is incredibly tough, mm -hmm. but the moment you're in, it's so easy to transition between them. Right. You know, it's almost, it's, it's incestuous how people go from Amazon to Facebook right. or Microsoft to Google, or, you know, I mean, there's just so many people who are transitioning between them. And I think that was something that I didn't realize in college, right. which like there is probably, you know, a dozen unicorns at any right. time. And then a few of the biggest large public companies and right. just get a job at any one of them. It doesn't matter where you start your career, just do it and then transition. Yeah. Um, because it's, that's all you need is to get into those top ones. Yeah. What, as soon as I started working for, uh, my first big company, I never realized, you know, I'm, we're all consumers, right? And I was only on the consumer side for so long that mm. when I thought of brands, when I thought of companies, I thought only of how I would interact with them. Then I start working at my first large company and I understand how big of an impact brand equity has yeah. from the career standpoint. And that was something that was so new to me and so crazy to think about is just the like, you throw Stanford on your resume, you throw Harvard on your resume, oh, yeah. you throw Microsoft, Google on your resume. Like the, the value that that adds, like zero context. Totally. No yeah. context. Zero. You, you see it and, and <laughs> immediately it, you have a different perspective on someone. It's true. It's true. And, and, and that's the, crazy. The thing I will say though is like, I mean, I went to the University of Oklahoma, like we didn't go to Harvard, Stanford, mm -hmm. Ivy's like, and I think the top some percentage of people at every university are as good as any mm -hmm. Ivy league or as any, like you can get into anywhere right. uh, in terms of tech companies or, or companies more broadly, you just have to try, right. you know? And I think that's the thing that like a lot of people don't understand is like, I mean, even when I went to Oklahoma, it was sort of like a long shot for you to get into Microsoft, Google, right. Apple, like it was nearly impossible. Right. And so I think like, that's the thing. The other thing that I didn't understand is I actually like in college, I decided to do a fifth year. Cause I was just like, I don't really know what I want to do. Right. And I wasn't getting into the, any of these tech companies. And so I, I took a fifth year to do another internship. Okay. And that intern, like in that year was when I sort of saw a few friends getting jobs at Microsoft, okay. Google, Apple, Facebook, and was like, huh, this is actually possible. Right. And so like, I mean, then I just was laser focused, Right. you know, it was like, just there are like five companies that I was going to get into mm -hmm. and that was it. And like for me to like back to your question of like, would I go back like, or would I do it again? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like I would take that. I, I would be an idiot if I didn't take that job. Right. Right. Um, but the other thing I didn't understand too is like I applied to five companies before my senior year of college and I only got one of them and I, it was Microsoft. Right? right. And I was super disappointed. And so I went as like an engineer, like I mentioned and beyond that, I was an engineer. I didn't want to be an engineer. I, even though I have a CS master's, I never wanted to code again. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to apply for PM jobs, either product manager, program manager, whatever it might be, only one company gave me a shot and that mm -hmm. was Microsoft. Right. Right. And that was the company who I'd been at for the summer. And because they knew I was good and that I was responsible, right. they gave me a shot. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, again, I applied to all of those companies and one gave me a shot both times. Right. And so I think like, that's the other misconception is that like, even if you apply for many companies, you just need one to hit. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's just hitting the lottery once. Right. And so right. I think like, that's the thing to your brand recognition point as well is like, you don't need eight offers because your resume is going to have one name on it. Right. And your LinkedIn's going to have one name on it. Right. And that name's the name that matters. Right. So just get the one. And I think it's also important to like the, 
the way in which you go about getting the uh, attention of these companies is super important. I think a lot of people just throw the, you know, do the shotgun approach and and hope one replies. And at some point you kind of got to, you have to take different avenues. One of my big successes, and I didn't really expect anything to come out of it was the on LinkedIn was the messaging people and just saying, what can I do for you? Yeah. Like that's it. That's just that, just that. Yeah. Some don't reply. Some are like, like, this is kind of weird. And it kind of is. It <laughs> uh, kind of is. weird, but. And then some people are like, well, hang on a minute. Like, like, why? Why did you ask that? And, and it's, it's when it comes from a, a spot of like, I actually want to help you. People yeah. see that right away. And like, that's such a kind of abstract way of going about getting the attention people, but it works. Yeah. No, we've actually heard similar things in, in the startup space where people go to investors and they just explicitly tell them, I do not want your money. Right. Right. And that like an investor has heard everything. Right. right? Like a Silicon Valley investor, if it's 10 a.m., they've heard everything mm-hmm. already today. Right. And if you tell them, I don't want your money, but I want to show you what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And then six months later, will you give me the opportunity for me to come back and show you that I did it? Right. You know, and I think like the same thing could be true for for jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think about like like go to them in, in non recruiting seasons. Right. Where the recruiters are freer. Right. Right. And say, like, listen. I know you don't have any jobs now, but let's start a community. Let's start a, a right. plan, right? Like let's, let's start talking. Um, there was a guy at Google who famously, uh, created, I can't remember what his name was, but he created a newspaper, a monthly newspaper, and he started sending it every month to his recruiter. Mm-hmm. And it turns out after like, I think 12 months of doing this, he got a job okay. and he found out later that actually inside of the recruiting team, they were passing around his newspaper every month to all the entire recruiting staff wow. as sort of like, Hey, catch up with so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it became this crazy thing. And it was like right? a personal newspaper. It was a personal newspaper. Okay. So he would be like, he would like, you know, win a baseball game or something like flag football game. And right. he would write a story about it himself. Right. Um, and I think his, his name was like Danny or something. And he would call it like the Danny times, Okay. you know, but it's like, yeah, to your yeah. point, like find creative ways, right. right? Like what's the worst that can happen? He spends three hours right. writing some stories nobody responds. Right. Who cares? Right. Um, but I mean, in his case, it ended up getting him a job at Google and that's history, I guess, you know, and I think the, the, the essential part just in that whole equation is not asking anything of the person in which you're engaging with. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where, you know, everyone wants something and to, to your investor example, everyone wants their money. Yeah. And as soon as you take that approach of like, I don't want what everyone else is asking you to give. I just want to give you value or provide right. you value. Yeah. And that's just like, wait, really? Like, yeah. That? <laughs> and, I mean, even, even to like, I've, you know, in my new role has spent a bunch of time with salespeople mm-hmm. and like, I mean, I'll be very honest. Like I really don't like salespeople in a yeah. lot of cases because to your point, like they are almost like that shark. I mean, they have like a really weird reputation of like, we just want to sell you right. by any means. It does not matter. Right. And I think like, that's such a lame approach. Like right. I feel like becoming friends with people and actually being a human with them mm-hmm. is so much more valuable than yeah. selling them something, asking for money, like whatever it might be, just be a human, be a friend. Right. And I, good things will happen. Right. You know, they might have not happen as quick. Right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, of course. But like, who cares? Right. Like you'll end up having friends for life. Yeah. You know, I actually was talking with a mentor of mine recently and I asked him what he, you know, he's been very successful, sold multiple companies. And I asked him if he knew what his legacy was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I asked him what, what he was thinking about in terms of how he wanted to be remembered long-term. And he said something interesting. He said, after selling some companies, after being successful, he 
got rid of the rock star mentality of wanting millions of people to know his name. Right. And he said, I do not care about them because right. he said, I'll never meet them. I might have a positive impact on their right. life through something I've created. But he said, for the small set of people that I know, mm-hmm. I want them to think of me in a very principled way and very aligned with the goals that right. I set out for myself. And he said, like, those are the people that I care about. Right. And I think that's like something super interesting in this whole vein is like thinking through like, what is your legacy to the people who really matter to you right. and those who are your friends? Mm-hmm. And then the legacy to the sort of rock star sense of all the people who don't know you. Right, right, um, right. And I think it, again, just comes back to this being friends and being human yeah. with people and good things will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, especially if you made it this far. If you could do me a huge favor, if you're listening on SoundCloud, drop a like, drop a comment. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music, please drop a rating. Uh, I would really appreciate it. Share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with your dog, dare I say share it with your cat. I look forward to you listening to the next podcast.